between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And unto this mass movement, destined to bear the jeweled crown of geekdom upon its troubled brow, it is we, mass movement's chroniclers, who alone can tell thee of its saga. Let us tell you of the days of geek adventure. Welcome to a special edition of Mass Movement Presents, in which the sexier half of the middle aged crew, that is yours truly, me, talks to Andrew Thorpe King, entrepreneur and author extraordinaire, and James Domestic, punk rock, punk rock, long time punk rocker, poet, and all around busybody, and just person who does far too many things for a person to actually do. Anyway, um, let's kick things off. So. We'll start with the interview I recently did with Andrew Thorpe King about his um, new book, Failure Rules. So, without further ado, take it away, Andrew. Nice to meet you at last. Um, so, you've written a new book. I sure have. Hell yeah. <laughs> so, Failure Rules. Why failure? Why, why take failure as the base platform to base your book around? Uh, well, I think it's something that a lot of people um, either have a fear of or are ashamed of or don't properly in a premeditative fashion think about as they had it head out on unorthodox or, you know, off-road career paths or life paths. And to me, if you're going to do that and try to live your life in the highest fashion uh, with potentially the, the highest meaning and really using your most unique talent stack, an effective way you got to realize that those type of bold actions travel with failures you try to avoid them but you still need to anticipate them figure out how you're going to metabolize them figure out how you're going to leverage them and help them really make you stronger you know kind of like uh Nassim Tlaib talks about an anti-fragile uh where you you make gains from harm uh and you have to kind of do that with an intentional mindset I think um when, when it comes to failure so would you would you agree that there is no such thing as success without failure? If you haven't actually tasted failure, you're never going to recognize when success comes your way. You're never going to be able to understand the value of success unless you use failure as 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 a you know a way to measure it. Almost. Well, I think there are people that have had successes kind of un- under certain terms and certain lenses without failures, but I think that ultimately they will hit failure. Mm-hmm. And the people I've seen in my life who've had early successes, fast and strong, crash the hardest when failures come later right. because they haven't been conditioned. And so to me, you know, you certainly you do want to avoid failure, but I feel like I've been blessed with a lot of failures and hard times and tricky, messy situations early in life. So that as success began to came, as it began to come, it began yeah. to come to me, I was conditioned. And also, like, it really molded my character. So it helped me to kind of rightly handle the future success with humility, discernment, empathy, uh, you know, a more contextualized view of, of my own abilities and their interactions with my pursuits, that type of uh, disposition. Okay, so like me, you're a longtime veteran of the punk rock scene. Long, long That's time right. veteran. So do you think that, you know, your first exposure to the punk rock scene and the, the, the sort of DIY ethic that, that's inherent with it, help to forge your entrepreneurial spirit 100 percent. i see a through line straight through from entrepreneurialism to punk rock to diy mm-hmm. the idea that you're not going to wait for some sort of gatekeeper or wait for some sort of approval 
from society or for, from some boss or leader to get shit going and to make your art happen and to make your business or dream happen, that is 100% linked to punk rock for me. I don't even know that I would have ever been an entrepreneur if it wasn't for just the, 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 the ferociousness of punk rock being so deep within my being. I, I don't know that I ever would have. Right, so was it was it the music or the ideology that first attracted you to the scene? Because with a lot of people, it, it, it's a combination of both or one or the yeah. other. I, it, it's the alchemy of the whole thing. Right. I mean, the music is sterile without the message and the message is sterile without the feeling. Okay. It's, it's a feeling. It's the attitude coupled with, with the, the lyricism, the poetry of a punk rock, and then obviously the fucking music, right? Yeah. At the same time, I think the music is important, but it, to me, it's third, right? To me, it's first okay. message, second feeling and attitude, third, the music. The music is just the backdrop that mobilizes those other things that to me have more weight and more meaning, which is why I have a soundtrack to the book, the failure old soundtrack mm. on Spotify or Apple. And to me, like I have a wide array of artists on there. There's even some outliers that aren't punk or metal or hardcore because the lyrics actually spoke to me. It didn't fucking matter what the music was, right? So I authentically put those songs in the soundtrack. But most of them, it's because those specific lyrics were poignant to me at the time that I was writing this book, or they're poignant to me at the time that some of these stories in my book, the personal ones, happened to me, and they actually mobilized me to certain decision points. I mean, for example, you know, there was a time where I uh, went through a business divorce uh, that put my life in a little bit of chaotic disarray, and I had to, you know, organize, reorganize my life, uh, and, and a fast follow was a marital divorce. I found myself, uh, for the first time in 15 years, um, no longer a full-time entrepreneur. I had to take a job in the corporate world, no longer married. I was single. And there was a time where I was living in a hotel room. Um, so I had no office to go to uh, by day in that interim period and no home to go to at night. Uh, and it was hate breeds divinity of purpose. That song that just fucking spoke to me, the right. lyrics from that song. I'll read them right now for, for your listeners. And there's the cover of the book. I'll read it right from the book. So, you know, Jamie Josta's lyrics to that song. I felt the pain of discipline was less than that of regret lifted one foot from the grave when the purpose showed its face. And when the skies crashed down upon me, I looked for someone by my side. You were there when no one else was. You showed me what's born doesn't always die. The divinity of purpose. And that's what lifted me out of that time, man. I could have wallowed in alcoholism and I'm no stranger to alcohol. I'm <laughs> bourbon right now, but nice. I didn't do any of that. I, I, I lifted my one foot from the grave. Purpose showed its fucking face. And I went out and reorganized my life and five things happened during that period because of that grit, because that song motivated me, motivated me. One was I began, uh, you know, I was in the online lending space. I began a consulting business that turned into a proper lead generation space that was very lucrative. I finished my first spy novel. I, I did some reinvestment into my record labels, particularly Sailor's Grave Records, ended up releasing Booze and Glory in the States. I don't know if you that, know them. Great fucking oi band. I lo- love Booze and Glory. They're on Pirates, Booze Pass, and Glory, the Pirates Pass as well. So. You know, another yeah. one of my favorite labels. So, yeah. Um, so you'd argue that punk rock is more of an attitude than an actual musical form. Something 100%. I would agree with, yeah. Something I would agree with you there 100% as well. When you mentioned bourbon, what's your bourbon of choice? What's your poison of choice? So I'm an old, I, I'm an old forester guy, so, you know, it's... All uh, right, right. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not high and fancy, and I'm not well. You know, yeah. To me, the everyday, to me, the everyday shit is uh, Maker's Mark, Knob Creek, Woodford Reserve. You know, stuff like that. I don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's like in the movie or in the show uh, Goliath with Billy Bob Thornton when he goes up to the bar and he's like, "I'll take a bourbon," and they say, "What kind?" He goes, "I don't really give a shit." That, that's how I am. You know, as long <laughs> as it's just not shit, just give it to me. 
Just give me the brown stuff in a fucking glass with the rocks. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I'll take, I'll take, I'll take all Forrester first, then make his mark and wood, wood for reserve afterwards. But it's you yeah, know, yeah, all yeah. Forrester first and foremost, man, because that stuff just is is my poison of choice. That's so, a sequence. I got you. How so do you, you think? Do you think that that punk is more of a message? Oh, it's more of an it's more of an attitude than a musical form. Because I would argue that someone like Johnny Cash mm-hmm. is just as punk as someone like Jello Biafra in his attitude and his outlook on life and the music he forged and the, the way he wrote and felt and put his you know his words across. So yeah, it's it's far more of an attitude, but I don't think you discover that until you're actually part of the scene. That's true. That's true because you you have to see the collective power of that attitude within the within the scene for sure yeah i, I agree with, i mean johnny cash is a great example i write about him in the book there's a chapter called uh get used to unsafe spaces and it's about johnny cash's life and how he he fucking turned away from the stability and the safety file mentality of the world of the nine to five world he was offered this job to be a salesman you know hello i'm johnny cash from his uh first wife uh her father and his father first father-in-law and he declined that and chased his wild, tumultuous, mysterious journey into music, which led to dysfunction, confusion, addiction, all these other things. But then those tragedies and that destruction and depravity led to his redemption, led to the beauty and the power of his music, which now is, lives on in a perennial fashion. Like, yeah. And the way he did it was 100% punk rock. And the same way social distortion, when they do country songs, is just as punk as their old shit, you know? See, again, I would argue that social distortion didn't find their true musical path. Until ten years after, ten years after mm. the fact, so Mike Ness hit rock bottom, cleaned himself up, and came back and discovered the power of rock and roll, and that is what was his rede- was was his redeeming, you know, glory. That's that's Amen. what brought him on the whole. Yeah. So with Thorpe Records, and I, I, I'm gonna have to talk to you on Thorpe Records because you you signed one of my favorite bands of all time, and I think you know who I'm going to talk about from Boston. Oh, Blood for Blood. Blood for Blood. Yeah. I wasn't sure if he's going to Madball or Blood for Blood. I didn't no, know no, no. I'm not really a Madball guy. I'm more of an AF guy than uh, Madball. But I love Blood, both. Blood for Blood. Oh, because they picked up the ball that Sheer Terror just sort of left behind yeah. when Paul went on to do... I did a know, Sheer Terror record, no too. Coffee. I did the live at CBGB one. Uh, yeah. DVD from 2004. Yeah, go on. Yeah. So how would you fit blood for blood in with your ideology now because because they they're <laughs> you know they've always had a really sort of nihilistic view on life whereas mm-hmm. yours is more positive upbeat and more get up do it you know if yeah, you're not sure. down stand up get up keep fucking moving don't don't slow down 100 percent well the record i put out actually serenity it was yeah. the juxtaposition of the depravity of addiction and that fallout and also the hope of serenity i mean it was called serenity I mean, there was just as much many demons in that in that album as there was strains of 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 a, of a reach for hope, right? Right. And Rob is a complex, brilliant fucking artist, and he's able to capture that shit, you know, in the way that he puts his music out in the world. So for me, that captures the complexity of the constant toggle between depravity and hope right. that punk rock, to me, really just puts out in the world in, in, in a brilliant aesthetic manner. So to me, it's the epitome of it, right? So yeah, it's hard to find some sort of definitive positive message in Blood for Blood. And Rob would admit that. You know, he even talks now about how he doesn't really want to go in the direction of some of his old poisonous messages in the past. He said on a recent podcast, this is hardcore podcast. But for me, it's like, I think you still need to understand what the feeling is of that depravity. You know, like the song Living in Exile, which I have on the soundtrack. It's that feeling of feeling run down and chased 
and one step forward, 10 steps knock the fuck back and how exhausting that is and how, how hard it is to, to have that fight in you every day to keep going. And like, you got to understand that exhaustion point, that depravity yeah. point to really empathize with others in that space. And I think that's just as important as some sort of like rah-rah PMA speech, right? And I'm as PMA as the next guy, but you got to understand that depravity space as well. Well, so Rob, no, because he's because he, he seems to be in a place where he's happy and where his life has finally found some meaning that he enjoys. But blood for blood can't exist, I don't think, with Rob's mentality where he is now, with, with the mindset where he is now. Could he do blood for blood in the same? I don't think he could because it's it's a part of his life that he needed to take it from that po- point to this point here. You know. Well, I wouldn't report the answer for Rob at all. I haven't yeah. spoken to him in quite a while. But uh, I think there's probably something to what you're saying. Um, and maybe that's why he's put more of his time into Ramallah, which is a lot more versatile, um, you know, when he when he's making music. So I, I really don't know. Um, yeah. But but I see your point. There is a, a sense where artists, uh, their newer music outgrows the sensibilities of their older music because right. of where they are in their lives. And I think that's natural. But it also spins kind of a more complete narrative over the course of the body of work that's produced. Yeah, um- Another thing I wanted to ask you, how does a spy, how do you go from being a spy novelist to writing, <laughs> you know, failure rules? Yeah. So I think it all ties together, right? Like I talk about in the book, yeah. the mysterious tumultuous calling journey that I'm constantly trying to align myself with. And I've been figuring out what that means, right? It's, it's kind of the idea of like destroying future regret. When something burns within me, I will chase it either till it fails, succeeds, partially succeeds, or it's just exhausted itself and it's time to move on to the next thing. So that I do not have fucking regret when I'm on my deathbed, that everything that burned inside me, I pursued. Right. right? And so there was a period in my life where um, I had to put the record labels kind of on ice. And I went from doing them full time, had some financial trouble, and then ended up doing them as a part time side hustle business. Uh, and then full time went into finance. And, and again, was still an entrepreneur, started my own financial planning practice. It was kill or be killed. No guaranteed paycheck. Clients were all in the Midwest at the time, the Auto Belt, you know, near Detroit, Toledo, Ohio. Right. 2008 financial crash hit. Boom. The practice really started disintegrating. And I was in a rough time. And to me, I escaped <clears> into this kind of healthy space of creativity. Like, I need to do something positive. And I was reading a lot of spy novels, Vince Flynn, Ted Bell, Brad Thorne, just love that shit. And just took me into a new world. And then I just decided, well, I can do this too. I'm a writer. So I started writing one. It took me seven years to complete um and i just did it and got it out and so it was just like this creative outlet of failure like amidst failure find a healthy creative outlet that will help kind of buoy you and give you that positive momentum to deal with the other shit and that has always worked for me and then with failure rules it was the same thing the idea the genesis of the idea was around that period where my ex-wife and i split and i was going through a a, a business divorce and one venture it's a lot of chaos in my life and I thought of all the cascading issues that I dealt with and how strong I got from them and what my virtual mentors were that inspired me, whether it was a Cro-Mag song or whether it was a Winston Churchill quote, all these things that were kind of part of the stew that helped give me strength. I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book about the value of failure. And I started that. That took eight years, took me here. And now this is probably the most complete body of work that I've done that really encompasses the full width of my personality from my love of cigars to entrepreneurialism to spirituality to punk fucking rock to whatever and just put it all in this stew and it, it, it kind of came out and I think it's a it's a pretty cohesive cohesive read because I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by any writer's journey being a writer you know because that's that's my full-time job and mm. 
and I'm a published author as well. Because it's my, my, my job. I'm a ghost. I'm a ghostwriter and a copywriter. Wow. Okay. I knew you were a writer, but I wasn't quite sure what what the uh, what, what the modalities were. So you do right, ghostwriting. So, so and by, by day I'm a ghostwriter and I'm a, I'm a copywriter. So it, it, mm. it, it, they're both sort of gel because I write for a variety of different clients. That's awesome. But I'm also a published author, and I, I kind of like anybody's journey as a writer because I think it shows the true depth of their character. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you, what you what you pour on the page is you, is a reflection of you and That's your right. true spirit. Um, so with failure rules, I, I guess you found the direction you wanted to go and you found the outlet for your ideas, trying to help other people to understand your journey, but also sort of giving them their own direction. Yeah, I think so, right? So when I started it out, it was it was very self-centered. And then I was mm. just putting my stories on paper. And I stepped back. I looked at him and said, all right, this is great, but I'm not that interesting. So what lessons can I extract out of this that can be more applicable to the reader? And how can I make that more apparent? Right. So I came up with themes and lessons. They turned into lessons attached to each chapter. Those lessons grouped up and rolled up into certain rules that I identified. So the five rules of failure. And I was like, okay, again, I... I I want to tell my story, but I'm not that interesting. <laughs> you know, who else can I put in here to layer in stories that will give this more texture, more diversity of, of, uh, of narrative. And so that's when I went into who are the people that inspire me? What stories inspire me? So there's a wide selection of case studies. I mean, everything from Lemmy from Motorhead to uh, 10 pin bowler, Thomas Smallwood to, you know, cupcake entrepreneur, Gigi Butler to Rodney fucking Dangerfield. I mean, there's all over the place here, but it's especially spe geared towards entrepreneurs, creatives, you know, those are taking unorthodox paths in their career or their right. life where there's no blueprint. You don't get a degree from college and have a straight path. You got to figure it out in kind of a punk rock circumventing way, how you're going to make it happen. So studying those people, like what did they do? How did they think? What was their mindset? How did they make that happen in, in a very difficult pursuit? Well, it's, it's, it's like interesting because you bring someone like Rollins into the, into the book. And this is a yeah. man who's, you know, his, his all encompassing ideology is one that I, absolutely agree with you know no such thing as spare time no such thing as downtime no such thing that's as right time. all you got is lifetime go <laughs> it's that that's right that's right you know you, you've just got if you don't do it nobody's going to do it for you you've got to make mm -hmm. it happen for yourself which is i think the lesson he took to heart and yeah. put out there further and this is what i see failure rules as almost a continuation of that ide ideology that makes I think the, the fact that you knew that that song lyric right there, because I mean, yeah. Rollins Band, let's face it, people think of Black Flag. Rollins Band had its day, particularly with the MTV thing with low self-opinion. Mm -hmm. But like that song, Shine, which a lot of people would think was like is almost like some corny Tony Robbins song. I love that song. Those lyrics are so fucking great, especially the ones you just, you know, yeah. rattle off. Like those lyrics have meant so much to me. And if I took the time uh, to bleed for the tiny little arrow shot my way, I wouldn't be here. Like those right. lyrics right there. Yeah, Bam. that's a story of my fucking life right there. I ain't taking the time to bleed from that shit. I'm moving forward. There's no such thing as downtime. All you have is lifetime. So even if I'm lifting weights, I'm smoking a cigar in the hot tub, wherever I am, even my reflection time is planning, processing. Yeah, because your, bra your brain move. never switches off and it's always that's turning. Right. So, yeah, it's yeah. still lifetime. Yeah. Even when I look like I'm physically resting or physically doing something else, the mind is still scheming and planning and moving forward. And that's that's to me what that song means. There's, like, like I'm going to have a massage tonight. That's still not really downtime. That's processing. I'll be thinking about, 
you know, what's my next move? Today the book comes out as we record this. I'll yeah. come home. I got a ton of other shit to do to, to get it moving. There is no such thing as downtime. It's integration of everything all at once. It's all lifetime. So are you are you going to do like a book tour and take take the book on the road and yeah, make so, it? I mean, right now, right now I'm doing the podcast tour, which is pretty all consuming. Yeah. Obviously, it has a high read. So doing three or four of these a week in various spaces, everything from music to entrepreneurial podcasts, inspiration, spiritual right. stuff, like all different verticals. You know, I'll be doing a bunch of cigar podcasts too. And then I think in the new year I'm going to organize probably two threads where. I'm going to try to book a tour in cigar lounges in that space because I have some friends who are cigar personalities for, um, you know, like um, Cohiba and uh, West West Tobacco, uh, West Tampa Tobacco Company. And, and also Joshua Coburn is an old punk rocker, motivational speaker, owns Dissonant Cigars. He's fucking awesome. You should have him on his sh- on your show. Uh, and then and then I'm going to organize something. I have this vision of like a punk rock PMA spoken word tour. Uh-huh. And I've talked to a few people. I don't want to drop names, but people kind of help with blurbs in the book and whatever and they're somewhat interested so we'll see what we can organize but yeah i'd love to do that in the new year and i'm hoping to see if they get something I, I think that's like small like 50 to 100 people in a, in a hall whatever you know? make it in man you know like a massive q a session not like on the, yeah. the, the kind of gary v sort of levels but you know pull it down and make it intimate because i think yes. that's when, when you when you look at someone like gary v now as inspirational as that guy is because his audience has grown exponentially he can't make the same sort of connections that he needs to make with people to, make, right. to put his message across. And I think you're at the start of something special with this book. Thank Maybe you. this is the Thank start you. of your next journey. Do you know what I mean? This is, this is, yeah, I mean, that, that's what I feel. I felt like I had to do it. Yeah. Like, even though, I mean, I'm putting a lot of money and time and energy into it, but I just feel this inertia where I don't have a choice. This is what's on the, in the cards for me. I'm going to follow through with it. And I get I, I get fulfillment and pleasure in just following it, right? And I think right. you're right. I mean, we'll see. We'll see how the world receives it. But um, you know, I have a vision for this that is wider than just the book. I mean, I have right. this clothing company I built around it, Soul and Fire Supply Company, you know, where I've got a whole merch line with various ethos and slogans that, that are echoed throughout the book. You know, I'm gonna launch my own podcast next year. I got a mini course on the website, like I got the soundtrack, like it's gonna have tentacles. Um, and so I think you're right. Cause I, cause again, it, this isn't really about me. My personality is embedded within it, of course, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's outward. It's how can other people experience in a cohesive package way, these lessons, th- this wisdom from a wide right. array of great creative mentors and entrepreneurs. And like, I, I think, I think it's valuable to a very unique, you know, uh, tribe in this world. Well, so you, you mentioned cigars. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest. I, I know nothing about cigars. I'm, I, I haven't even smoked a cigarette in 15 years. <laughs> but you know, that seems to be a passion of yours as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. I mean, I think the entire book was written with bellowing clouds of first and second hand premium cigar smoke filtering throughout the air. You know, and I was either drinking lots of coffee, lots of bourbon, or coffee with whiskey in it throughout the entire thing. So. You know, I don't do drugs or anything like that, but I am, I stick to my trinity of, of, of vices of alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine, alcohol, nicotine, caffeine. So cigars for me, like two or three a day, uh, you know, while I'm working, whatever, whenever, whenever I'm either not lifting weights or having sex, like we're sleeping, I usually have a cigar <laughs> in my hand. And it just, to me, it brings like flavor to life. Like, I don't know. It's like life without them. It's like dried toast. To me, it's just like, 
It makes everything enjoyable. Just the integration of pleasure with work and art and creativity. It makes my thoughts just, you know, just... just it, it's kind of the way I see like the whole, craft, the whole craft beer thing where, I mean, a, a lot of people I know will drink any old crap they want to, but I'm not going to put that in my body. I want to drink something that's something for passion and time and commitment yes. and effort into doing. And that's maybe what you see in cigars as well. It's like individual taste. It's someone else's effort and then passion and enjoy, you, you get to sample that you get to taste that again it's the, the creative spirit it, it's an art and it's also a culture right so i know people like you know rick rodriguez who did a quote in the book and i read about his st- story he was the master blender for ceo of cigars i read about his story how he be, became a master blender right. he's a friend of mine he just started his own entrepreneurial journey and left cao and started west tampa tobacco company and he's kicking ass on that but like the craft that he puts into blending and the culture of like cigar lounges and the brotherhood and camaraderie there it's just like there's something special there that um you know i've i've been attracted to now for about 15 years since i've been a regular cigar smoker uh and just the greatest people you meet through right through smoking cigars and, and just the the art of the of the cigar band like this is a my father like even just looking at the cigar band like right i don't know it just it puts me in a mood there's an aesthetic there that evokes something you know and they all are very different you know and it's um it's it's a passion. It's like it's like an accent of life that I, I prefer to not live without. So now the books, it's because you just mentioned the book has been published today. It's been released today. It is today is the day. It is release day. Yeah. How yeah, do you feel about it now? Day. How do you feel about it now that it's out there? Because you, there's nothing quite like holding your own creative work in your hands. You can do the right. PDF. You can see the digital, right? But the, right, but when you see the book. When you hold yeah, that yeah. physical thing in your hand, that physical entity, it's different. It is. How did it make you feel? Well, you, you, you're spot on, right? It's this like it's this thing that that like like formed in secret within you for years, and it wasn't fucking real. If you told somebody about it before it was too real, they didn't even know what the hell you were talking about. So you keep it inside because you don't even want to tell them because they ain't going to understand until it's actually real. Now that it's real and it's like you can physically see the book and see, see stuff online. And I got videos on the YouTube channel and Andrew Thorpe King and all this stuff is real. Now yeah. it's like, oh, this isn't in my head anymore. This now makes sense in the real world. Others are digesting it. Others are getting something out of it or at least understand it. And just the satisfaction that it is amazing. It's it's the, you know, I say in the in the book that creation is its own reward first. Right. If any other rewards come later, that's great. You want that monetarily, whatever, but it's its own reward first. And that's this moment, right? Where it's out, it's real. This is like, it's its own reward first. Now I move forward and I'll try to, you know, build a readership and do all, all the stuff you got to do for marketing, but it's already like just um, an amazing feeling. Again, that's, a, that's, that's the punk rock spirit coming out manifesting what you just said. You you yeah. create because you have to create. It's the art of creating yeah. itself and making it. It's not about financial rewards. It's not about financial gain. It's about putting that's something right. positive out into the world. And that's what you've done with the book. So yeah, I mean, Andrew. just like Black Flag when they're when when Henry was touring back in the day and had to eat dog food. He's like, I'm gonna play my heart out first fucking rate, whether it's to one to ten people or you know a thousand. And it's yeah. like that fucking spirit. Like I'm gonna do it to the integrity of the output, to the integrity of the work let the audience come or not, I'm called to do this. And you fucking do it. Yeah, you play every show like it's the very last show you're ever going to play. Because it might be. You don't know. It you might know, be. You're... That's right. Yeah. So, Andrew, sell the book to me. Sell the book to the people out there in Mass Movement Land. 
Yes, floor is yours. Right, elevator pitch time, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I'm a wordy motherfucker. It's hard for me to get down to an elevator pitch, but <laughs> um, <laughs> so it, failure rules! Exclamation mark with a fist in the hand, fist fist in the air. You know that's what it is. It's, it's it's you're owning your failures. You're not fucking ashamed of them. Failure rule number five is you are not your failures. You certainly don't want to seek them out. You want to avoid them. So you invoke failure rule number four and you build the scaffolding of build your thing one, thing two dependency like Chris from Bridge Nine Records did when he underwrote Bridge Nine by creating another company, Yankee Sucks, Yankee Sucks that was profitable enough to, to make Bridge Nine get off the ground. So you still don't want to avoid failure. So that's failure rule number four is build your thing one and thing two dependency. And failure rule number one, failure purifies, which is, you know, you know let, let the Phoenix, the Phoenix has to burn to emerge. Right. When you go through failure, realize there's usually some sort of faulty foundation. There's some waste. There's some unproductive thinking or ways of being that needs to burn off you. Find out why that's burning off of you and what you need to rebuild from there. Don't view it as a negative. It's a rebirth every time, you know. Let failure be your teacher, not your undertaker, you know. Uh, failure rule number two is nothing is safe, which really came from Lenny from Motorhead when he was doing an interview and he's talking about how nothing is safe, you know, and, and he when he was – uh, you know, the, the Ariana Grande concert where it got shut down, you know, the terrorists and all that in the right. UK and Manchester. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, Motorhead couldn't play and they're interviewing them. And like, oh, you know, well, you know, would you have played if, if the police and the venue would let you? And he's like, fuck, yeah, nothing is safe. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, you know, and he's like, they don't like rock and roll and I don't like them, but you know, I'm, I'm not going to not play. You know, right. nothing is safe. And I took that whole idea and wrote 27 chapters on it and became federal rule number two is nothing is safe because I really believe that this notion, this clean safety holds so many people back from living their most authentic, real, productive life because they're so afraid of, you know, the optics of failure. They're so afraid of actually the actual pain of failure. They're afraid to take a chance and put themselves out there because they're clinging to some sort of safety, whether it's financial, reputational, whatever it is. I think that is the biggest blocker for creatives or potential creatives, and entrepreneurs. And I think it just needs to be obliterated. doesn't mean that you want to obviously, again, induce, you know, danger or failure, but you can't let, you know, some sort of clinging to, uh, to safety hold you back. So failure rule number two is nothing is safe. Uh, and I, I really believe that. I mean, that is, I think it's just a, a, it's a core value of mine. Uh, failure rule number three is money is spiritual, which seems counterintuitive. Money is the root of all evil, you know, all of that, but it's really not right. To me, money is just a tool. And it's as right. powerful as you let it be. If you go to the edges, the failure territory of envy or greed, then it will be bad. But if you use it for what it's intended to be, where it's a tool, it's a thank you note. It's something that can enhance your life or the lives of others. If you transact with ethics, uh, if you view it as the thank you note, as, as, a, as almost like a sacramental tool, then it can have so much power. So to me, growing up, like, you know, the, the notion of eschewing, you know, valuing money, um, you know, that was kind of how I grew up, that money was rich people and it, it's bad and you shouldn't think about it that much. But then I saw so much pain in the lives of people that didn't properly think about money and it didn't make any sense. Right. I also saw really, really wealthy people that were super generous and super helpful and some that were super greedy and complete assholes. And so money isn't the problem or the answer. It's how you view it. So that's why I write uh, failure rule number three, money is spiritual, which is all about how do you marry money with meaning and don't decouple them how can you make those two come together see i'm sold and <laughs> i I've, I've, <laughs> I've only had time to briefly flip through the book but it's this modern ideology i think 
with punk rock where we always saw the world from a nihilistic point of view and now it's become more positive and we we've opened ourselves up to a much broader spectrum of ideas and philosophies and i think this as as i said is is a platform for something new not just for you but for everybody else as well you to tune into this idea that we can make things happen for ourselves by using the world as a yeah. tool, by using the digital that's world right. as a tool, by using everything as a tool. Yeah, that's included. right. Yeah, I mean, oh. and it's... It, go ahead. No, 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 you carry on. I, I, I was going to add an addendum at the end. That's all. I get excited. I interrupt. I apologize. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely fine. The floor is yours, brother. Yeah, no, I think that's right. It's like, you know, um, you want to detach from the material world in terms of you know, what guides you? I, you know, I write about the Maharal of Prague, the Jewish mystic in the book, mm-hmm. and how he talks about letting the spiritual lead the physical. Don't let the physical lead the spiritual because then you're a docile slave to just the winds of the physical and the material world. But that doesn't mean that you don't want to have influence over, dominion over the material and physical world in a healthy way. You want to extend your imprint outward. I also right. write in the book about, you know, make your environment a product of you. Like, you know, Jack Nicholson said in The Departed, you know, I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want to make my product, my environment, a product of me, you know, like that's real. Go yeah. out in the world with fucking boldness and make the world a product of you, at least your immediate world around you in a healthy way, but don't be bent by it, you know, create a persona, have a mission statement and live by it and make a fucking imprint. However you can with whatever personality gifts you have with, with whatever talents and reach and relationships you have. Go out and make a damn imprint, however that is. Even if it's small, make it with boldness. See, the last thing we need to know, and everybody else needs to know, is where they can get this book. Yeah, so failure Where they get rules. failure rules. Everywhere books are sold online. So there's an audio book done by Jay Asang, who was the uh, producer, one of the producers on the show, uh, Twin Peaks on Showtime. He produced a music video for Social Distortions, Machine Gun Blues. Does a great job on the audio book. Hardcover, paperback, ebook. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you buy books, it's online. So search there. And then you can also go to andrewthorpeking.com. No E on the end of Thorpe, T-H-O-R-P. Find a lot of great shit there. Uh, You can sign up for my newsletter, please. And you'll get a free mini course uh, of the book. And then you can also, uh, there's a merch page there with like 17 kick-ass designs for Soul on Fire Supply Company. uh, And a link to the soundtrack, which you can hear on Spotify and Apple Music. And then I'm on Instagram at andrewthorpeking. Again, no E in Thorpe, T-H-O-R-P. It's been a pleasure talking to you tonight. Um, one day, I'm hoping we can get to split a couple of glasses of bourbon and just have a good time. And just <laughs> When I come across the pond, my friend, I'll do All right. for you. <laughs> Andrew, it's been an absolute pleasure, brother. Have a great night. Thanks for staying up late for me, man. You too. See you later, man. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Andrew Thorpe King talking about his new book, Failure Rules. Uh, next up is James Domestic, punk rock poet extraordinaire. So, um... Over to you, James. Smashing. So, let's start at the beginning then, because the essence of any human being is who they are. So, who is James Domestic? All right, James Domestic um, is uh, a man who takes on far too many projects. (laughs) Um, He's someone who's in about 10 bands, runs a record label and a distro, uh, pints, uh god what else do i do just put out a poetry book um used to do a fanzine didn't have time for that anymore so drop that <laughs> something had to go used to promote gigs 
had to drop that as well. That was far too stressful and too time consuming. And um, and do as on top of all that as a uh, a full time job as well. And so it's probably something I've forgotten. There's <laughs> something else. So so is it an age thing that everything has to fall by the wayside, or is it just you know there is not enough hours in the day? There just aren't enough hours in the day. To be perfectly honest, it's um, the trouble is what I do, Tim, is essentially I have loads and loads of ideas for things that I want to do, yeah. and I haven't got the kind of filter. Uh, in my brain that says, don't be stupid. You haven't got enough time to do that. Um, you're already doing about 20 bloody things already. Um, and I just go, I've had a great idea and I'm going to do it. And I've always been quite like that. If I have an idea, you know, like some people, they have an idea or they have lots of ideas. Right. And they keep telling you about this idea. And then you realize they've been telling you about this idea for about three or four years and they're never, ever going to see it through. I'm kind of the opposite of that. I have ideas all the time, and nine times out of ten, they will go to fruition because I'm just too stubborn to not do it. Really, I think I think it's I think it's more of a punk rock thing as well. Like when people me say I'm going to do this, you, you just do it because you're too. If you've told somebody you're going to do it, somebody's going to turn around. You know the scenes like so cliche. And be like, now nah, when you said you want to do that, but you never did, so you just well, fucking well will. It is, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, I, mean, it, it, I think that whole sort of punk mentality sort of goes through quite a lot of things that I've done over the years. Yeah. I mean, when I was, you know, it, w- it would seem like they're unrelated, but I don't think they are really. It's like when I was at school, I was typical teenager. I was into music and girls and going to the pub. I was in. I managed to let me stay in the sixth form, but basically I was in the pub most of the time and chasing (laughs) bands and all that. So consequently, other than like an AS English level, I got no real qualifications at school. Um, But in later years, I sort of, I went back and I did a degree uh, for the open university and then I did a master's and, eventually completely madly and i think possibly i was trying to overcompensate here for, for my terrible school record i went, went and did a phd as well you um, a phd yeah yeah so i am te- technically doctor domestic yeah i mean it's not something i particularly talk about a lot but i think if i if i hadn't had the self-belief of the intervening years of being involved with the punk scene right and you know that kind of attitude of I've had this idea and I'm going to see it through. I don't think I would have gone and got an education when I was in my sort of late twenties. So the, the whole Dr. Domestic thing sounds like one of those late night horror hosts. It's either, <laughs> it's either that or, or you're going to have a career of making pornography because it, it, sort, it sort of works that way. That's a good name. Yeah. <laughs> so punk rock poet. So you're more, are you John Cooper Clark or are you more Rollins? Where do you I see? Say, well, weirdly, I mean, I've probably been into to, to Rollins for longer, mm-hmm. um, but actually, I mean, I've been in you know John Cooper Clark for a few years, um, but I would say my stuff is probably more in the vein of, of John Cooper Clark, or maybe a bit of either Cutler and stuff like that. You know, right. um, you know, it's kind of I don't know. I mean, he's had a few comparisons with, with both of those people in, in reviews. And, uh, you know, neither of those bother me in the slightest. That's that's a real compliment, you know. No, it's a good company to be in, you know. Good absolutely, yeah, good for sure. circles to, to, to cast your oar into. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. No, I love this stuff because, you know, it's 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 got a poignancy, but it's also got humour with it. 
and you know and they're not frightened to be a bit absurd from time to time and that's kind of you know <laughs> kind of my approach to life really is a bit of all those things you know so it's not annoying as dark and nihilistic as the young Rollins was no 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 quite. well i mean to be honest i mean i think this this book has kind of thrown people a little bit hmm. um as has the solo record that i put out at the start of the year because there was a lot more obvious sort of humor in it people that just know me from the domestics and pisser and tokyo lungs when it's just full-on sort of vitriol and you know and have seen the domestics live in particular probably would expect me to be <laughs> a lot more rollins if you like, you know, and a lot more intense. And I, I've even had people say to me after gigs, like, yo, wow, I'd, you know, I've, I've now spoken to you for a couple of minutes, but I was a bit a bit, a bit frightened to approach you because, you know, you're so full on when you were playing. Like, I really thought you'd be quite, you know, quite scary, but you're actually, you're actually really nice. And I'm like, well, you know. <laughs> it's like, the, re- the reason that I'm really nice is because I've just done that for 30 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> so that gets it all out. You know, so at least the nihilism goes and, you know, you just, you can just focus on being you. You can focus like- on being a relatively normal human being for the rest of your time. So yeah, it's, it's, it's getting the balance, isn't it? You know, because I, I was never interested in playing you know, like stage rock and roll. When I played, when I was playing hardcore, I always wanted to play as fast as possible, get it all out, get it all done, come off, and just hang out and enjoy yourself. Yeah, because it's just a release. It's, it's it's a musical release. That's all it is. So the bands you play in are. <laughs> now I will say that a lot of these are studio projects, so they're not they're right. not gigging bands. The Domestics has been the main gigging band. I mean, they've been going for like I think eleven years now, and you know we've been all over Scandinavia and Europe and all that. Um, currently working on a new record, um, but there yeah, then there's Pissa that I do. We've been trying to record. Uh, we've done a couple of records already. Um, but we're trying to record the third sort of the, well, the, the full length, the 40 minute right. opus that we're going to do. Um, it's a kind of a weird band. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Bry from Doom's in it, and Charlie who was in Anti Simex, and uh, who else is in it? Um, Eddie from the Filaments, and like various people, Rhodes also from the Domestics, Matt who used to be in Revenge of the Psychotronic Man. So it's like a six piece D beat hardcore thing. <laughs> With saxophone, <laughs> which everybody said, honestly, I swear to God, when this when this first happened, yeah, when I first started talking to labels when we did a seven inch, I'd said like, I'm going to the studio um, with these people, and you know, it's, it's, it's this brand new band called Pista that we're doing, and so many labels went, oh man, yeah, yeah, well, I'd love to, I'd love to put it out for you, and they got it back and went, it's got bloody saxophone on it, you can't have saxophone with DB, that doesn't work at all, of course it does. Like, oh, if it works uh, in your head it works it absolutely works absolutely yeah and i knew i knew it was kind of gonna freak a few people out but that was kind of half the reason i wanted to do it you know um so yeah so we did it and i i put in most of the cash for that and it sold out really quick because i think once people had got over the initial shock they realized it was a really good record you know um so yeah, there's there's that band, but I mean that that ultimately is a studio project. I mean Charlie's in Sweden, Bryce, Bryce was in Bradford, is now in Bristol. I'm down in me and Rhodes are down in Suffolk. Eddie's somewhere in the Midlands. You know, it's just it's a logistical nightmare. We couldn't possibly make it a gigging band. You know, it's a, it's a wandering crew. It's just like back in the eighties when bands used to show up for shows, like like, like Doom used to show up, and they come from all over the country. They, you know, they just be like, well, some of us, some of us live in Bristol, some of us live in Bradford. Well, you know, do you, do you get to rehearse now? We just get up and do it, like. And that was it. That was it. And that was that. That was the spirit of what it was. And, and that's what piss is kind of like. It's, it's that eighties. Just do it, 
get it done. Yeah, absolutely. Done. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to be honest, I mean, we've, we're, you know, we've done, we did the seven inch, then we did a mini album, um, uh, crushed down to paste. And then we did, then I did a remix album, which really freaked people out even more. And I did like a dub remix of every song to put that on a 12 inch. Mm-hmm. Actually, I have one guy who liked the other two records and he went, you've gone too far. I don't get this. <laughs> I just don't get this at all. Yeah, that's, that's the point of it is pushing the boundaries and just going Absolutely, as far as yeah, That's can. what I like. You know, why, yeah. why you, I cannot see the point in just doing a band or any kind of musical project, or any kind of project that literally just apes something that's gone before. Of course, there's elements of other things, and, you know, I'd be a liar if I said I didn't have influences and things like that, but to make something that isn't a little bit sort of different to those things, you know, I find it pointless, really, to to do anything so generic, you know? That that was the thing with the last band, so we just put a fast, like, New York-influenced band together, got the best review ever which was like they sound like the, the demo version of antidote i'll take that i'll take that oh yeah that. yeah and uh yeah, yeah. so it's like fast hardcore so the songs all about disney and star wars and wrestling so <laughs> <laughs> no youth let's just let's do songs that you know nobody's going to expect us to do and then come at it from that point of view and when anybody actually starts liking the man just call it a day because I, cause I, what I discovered was I like watching documentaries about roller coasters more than I like being in a rehearsal room, which was, you know, that's when you know it's time to quit. Like, dear, oh dear, yeah. Well, yeah, no, that sounds great, though. That is a real, I, I, I don't think I've ever heard of a core band that, that sing about Star Wars and, and Disney. That's definitely new. I'll, send, I'll send you the link for it later. Yeah, no, I like stuff on Bandcamp, like, so yeah, yeah. But see, the last thing I ever expected you to do was write a poetry book. You know, from from listening to music and knowing the records you released, a poetry book, it just came completely out of left field. I thought, well, now I've got to talk to him about it. I've got to talk to him about it. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, it was a little bit left field. It's something I've been thinking about doing for quite a while, to be honest. But again, with everything else on, it's sort of, you know, been on the back burner for right. a bit. And I mean, I did have, I've had a couple of things published a few years ago now. Um, at one point, the uh, the Freedom Bookshop in London got burnt down by fascists, I think, about eight or nine years ago now. Although with COVID, I mean, time is just kind of like, I don't know what bloody year anything happened anymore. It's, just, it's yeah. really weird, isn't it? You know? um, but yeah, so that got burnt down and then they did, somebody was putting together like uh, a benefit poetry book. And I had a couple of things that I'd written down that, that, that weren't, probably weren't going to fit into a song in any of the bands I was doing at the time. So I, I just submitted it and they went, we love this. Yeah, we're definitely going to put this in. And I was like, oh, that's, that's great. So they did that. And then something else ended up on a website somewhere. And then I got tied up with doing so many other projects that I just didn't really pursue it. And then I read a book, um, Dave Cullen, who I, it's essentially a split book, you know, in the tradition yeah, of yeah. seven inches, et cetera, um, with Dave Cullen from the band Haste. And uh, he's had a few things published, a few sort of like, you know, I mean, this app books which are like little poetry books and that, even the terminology i mean I'm, I'm i'm no great shakes with it all and i'm certainly not really involved with the poetry scene as such certainly not at this stage uh i'd read one of his books and i thought this is really good maybe and i knew dave anyway right. you know and i said well, should we should we do something together and he said yeah well, what what have you got because he'd not seen any of my stuff. And I sent him four or five. He went, yeah, this is really good. It's very different in styles, you know, in, in compared to his. Um, but, yeah, this could make quite an interesting book. Let's do it. Let's do 100 pages and we'll take half each. And that was it. And we just did it. <laughs> and I was going to Spain, actually, like, I think about 10 days later. 
and I, and I had a few, obviously, as I say before. I went, yeah. but the rest of them I pretty much did when I was on holiday. Just I'd get up and get up in the morning, go and sit out the balcony, do a couple, <laughs> go out for the day, go to the beach, you know, kind of a few beers, maybe come and do one in the back in the evening, you know. And it just all came out, you know. There's, there's, like I said, there's always lots of ideas, and for me, it's finding the time to get them all down and do something with them. I'm never short of ideas. So, do you consider yourself a lyricist or a poet? Given you know you you are now in both you've now got one foot in both <laughs> sort of both games now, like, yeah. yeah jack of all trades yeah. Yeah, yeah um I would say probably a lyricist of, uh, above a poet um but weirdly I think I mean I remember being at you know that Manchester band Revenge of the Psychotronic Man you remember, yep. remember them they split up like oh, I don't know a few years ago now. And they did their very last ever gig um, in Manchester and domestics were on the bill. Um, yes, we've played with them loads of times and, and done stuff with them over the years. And um, we were playing that and somebody came up to me and was talking to me. Someone I actually know quite well. In fact, we're playing a gig for her birthday next next week. But I didn't know her at the time. And she came up and went, you're James Domestic, aren't you? She said, I've been reading your lyrics. They're like a poet. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> Pretty angry poet, but yeah. Um, but yeah, so so you know the, the ideas sort of has, has been lurking and bubbling away, you know. But right. yeah, I mean, I would certainly say more more of a lyricist than a poet because that's what I'm used to. That's what I've been doing since I was, I don't know, fourteen. You know, I've been writing songs and doing bands, you know, for about thirty years. You know, so it's uh, it's kind of second nature to me to do that. But I suppose as I've got older and I've read more and I've read more poetry, I suppose, you know. I found a way. I found a way of doing it in a style that's not uncomfortable for me. You know. Yeah. So your literary endeavours. Now that you're a poet, are you going to spread out into writing books? Are you going to make the move to novels? Well, weirdly, I did write a novel a few years ago. Okay. <laughs> it becomes no surprise, probably. I'll give you the list of things that I've been doing. I did write a book. Um, oh God, when was it? I was living in Colchester at the time, so it must have been. Oh, um, 15 years, probably slightly more than 15 right. years ago. And um, it was about like, well, the initial setting was kind of a restorative justice thing. And then this kid kind of ran away from home and it was all about that sort of stuff. And, you know, luckily I was working in an office at the time where if I got in early, I could use the photocopier pretty freely. I was sending them all out to agents because I'd heard that you had to send like the first 50 pages yeah. out to, to uh, like literary agents and stuff. So I sent that around to a few and one got back to me after that and said, can you send me the full manuscript? I was like, whoa, here we go. Never heard from her again once I read the rest of it. It had quite a depressing ending to be honest. They probably did a very right. That's, that's the um, thing. When, when you get, when literary agents get involved, because um, when, when I, way, way back when I uh, first read the book, I sent it off to, and you still Sander Hicks, Sander Hicks at Soft Skull. Oh, right. So I sent it to Sander, and he goes, I want to publish it. Can you send me the manuscript? So I sent him the manuscript. In between sending him the manuscript, it getting him being read, he'd sold the company, and the new head of Soft Skull didn't want to do it. So it's like, well, that's a kick in the balls, isn't it? Yeah, well, bloody hell, yeah. And that's kind of what happens with a lot of bands, doesn't it, when they get signed to bigger labels, right. you know? They put the A&R guy that signs them up, leaves the company three months later, and no one else likes the bands, and they well, go down the pan. You that's know? It. But, you know, the book's out now, because it's out with, like, on Earth Island, but you, it's yeah, just, yeah. Just, you take all those steps, and you go, well, that was a kick in the dick. That really was like so. Yeah, oh, it's a real pain in the ass, isn't it, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, for sure. Well, um, I think we get yeah. used to it, like with punk rock, because it's taken us, you know, 
you just keep trying to do something and you know that you're never going to rise above a certain level anyway, but you don't care because that's where we used to be. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it really is. I mean, you know, I think, I mean, at the back of my mind, of course, you know, I'd like, I'd like to sell some more records and some yeah. more books and stuff. But at the end of the day, you're not doing it to be, I mean, you know, I'm too old to be a pop star. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's not going to happen. You oh, know? I don't know. You're, and fairly, I, and I don't, good, and you're a fairly really good looking chap. You've got the top of the pops appearing like. <laughs> Get up there. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I'm probably a, a little too old for that now. But I, I think it's just also I, I don't know if I've really got the temperament for it. Really, do you know what I mean? I, I like to do my own thing, my own way. And I think I think there's are probably, and I'm fairly sure that there are compromises that you have to make along the way. Oh, well, comp- compromise isn't always a dirty word, but I yeah. think if there are, there's a, there's a certain point. You know, if I'm asked to make compromises on things. My my immediate reaction is to say, no chance, mate. It's not going to happen. Yeah. It's not to say I wouldn't ever, but, you know, I think that the, the people generally have different levels of the amount of compromise they're prepared right. to make. And my levels are pretty bloody low, really, to be honest. So. The thing is, like, the older you get, the less you want to compromise anyway. Because you get this idea where it's stuff, stuff you. If you don't like it, stuff you. I don't care. You know, it, yeah, it, no, it's absolutely. your choice. You know, you know what I mean? It's, just, it's somebody's choice if they're going to read your book. I mean, I, ideally, we want everybody to read the book. You know what I mean? Oof. And you'd be strolling around London quoting passages from you know, of your poetry. But being realists and pragmatists, we know that's not going to happen. But yeah. there are people who, but for every 30, 40 people who don't buy the book, one person's going to buy it. I think that's the way to look at it. Yeah, absolutely. And you do it for the sake of, because there's something in you, you want to get it out. Yeah, and you want to you want to do something with it, you know. It's you know, I mean, I don't I don't make my living from doing music, oh, you know, no, and, yeah. and I never will. <laughs> it's extremely <laughs> unlikely I ever will because all the bands I'm in, I really have so little commercial potential. It's it's laughable, but you know, it's like it's so weird. Like if you work in a normal job. As you know, most people in bands do. I mean, this idea that if you're in a band and you go and play a few gigs abroad, then you must be raking it in, which yeah. is kind of what, you know, people people that I work with who are not into music or bands and stuff particularly, you know, they go, wow, have you played out in, in Sweden and Norway and all that? And you've played some festivals. Oh, man, what are you working out for? You know, <laughs> because I'm fucking sod all doing that. It's great fun. It's brilliant fun. You meet loads of great people. You get a real buzz off the audience going nuts. You don't make any money off it. Yeah. <laughs> why, why are you working there? I've got, I got an electricity bill to pay. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly I, that. I've got know. a daughter in university. If I was relying on music to pay the bills, you know, I'd, I'd be living under a bridge. You know? oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we'll all be living under a bridge soon enough. With, with well, the yeah, latest. with the way prices are going. Up, yeah. yeah, and with the latest, what was it, mini budget? joke man absolutely joke fucking travesty so how can people get your book james uh well uh probably the best port of call is probably jamesdomestic.com um it's really a site that's i kind of set it up around the solo record carry on repeating that i put out um but there's also a section on there for the poetry there's a section on there for the painting that i do as well um and there's a like an upper project section so people could look up all the various bands that I do. So it's become a kind of though it was set up for the solo thing, it's become a bit of a hub for everything else, really. Um so that's probably the the first port of call. Keep things right. simple. 
just keep it easy and order via mail. But like, so are you going to do like poetry nights now? Are you going to get yourself out there and do poetry readings, you know, and in, in bookstores and stuff? Well, I don't know, actually. I mean, it's something that me and Dave spoke about the weekend, actually. So I was in Hastings and where he lives and we happened to be chatting about it. Um, and yeah, I think it's something that both of us, I think, I think he's done a couple of like, you know, warm up things at right. you know, music gigs. Um, I'm not sure they went fantastically well. Um, because I mean, it's a difficult sell to punks, isn't it? In a way, <laughs> do you know what well, I mean? It's, uh... All you got to do is if you don't call it a poetry night, call it a spoken word night, right? If you call it a spoken word night, people go, Oh, again, Rollins. We like a bit I of that. I suppose, yeah. That's turn up. Probably, that's probably a good call, actually. Yeah, and that's all he did. Like, the minute you say poetry, it's like, yeah, oh, that's all he did. Flowers and stuff. He, he read his miserable bloody poetry. You know, I, 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 I love Rollins a bit, but his poetry, Jesus, leaves me cold. <laughs> I like his I like his books. Um, yeah, you know, do you know what I mean? I've read I've read most of those, I think, um, and I, I've always enjoyed them, even though they're really quite dour and then really little more than diary entries. There's something about them that sort of draws you in, you know. But um, yeah, poetry wise, mm, not so sure. But it's like because he, he spent his twenties, you know how I, how I spent my twenties being a miserable fucker, and for the most part, that's what what all of us do. You know, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I don't yeah. think you, you know, you hit your stride till you're in your thirties and forties, and then you know, <laughs> hit fifty. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah, I, yeah, I, I know what you mean. I, I, I think, I think the thing is, I mean, it might have been different for him because he had you know different sort of opportunities during his twenties, yeah. I suppose, because he was doing so much with Black Flag and all that. Right. But most people aren't doing something on that level in their twenties, um, and I think. For most ordinary people, certainly in my case, I didn't really have the confidence to really push anything until I got into my thirties. Really, I didn't have the self belief to be able to do stuff in my twenties. I was like, oh, yeah. and also you're quite naive. You kind of believe this sort of rock and roll thing about, oh, well, if I just do something and I play a few gigs, you know, someone's going to come along and offer me a record deal. And right. like, do you know what I mean? It's like you're yeah. eighteen, twenty, twenty-two. And you you believe all that shit? <laughs> they think that's how it works. You know? It's like this thing. Cause like when, I remember, like when I was in coming up to like twenty five, twenty a bit past twenty five. Fracture was the big thing, and because mm. I was right, and I was right for Fracture, and he was, was the UK version of rock and roll. What a load of horseshit! Absolute bloody horseshit, man. Because you 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 preach this idea where the scene is all united, and you know most people who wrote for Fracture couldn't stand each other. But the ones who could would take the money and fuck off to Spain for a holiday every now and then. Uh, right, so yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. it's it's a, it's a, it's laughable. So you do that in your twenties because you believe that you know, oh, seeing unity, but it's all bullshit. You know, people just pe- you're, you're, being a you're punk, either, being a punk don't change the with... person you are. You know. Yeah, you're either unified with, with some people in a scene or, or you're not. It's not like this, this huge unified thing. I mean, right. that would be ridiculous. That would be like saying, you know, oh, I don't know. I mean, this is, this is a bit of an old school reference, I suppose, because you don't have many now. But saying like, well, all, all the milkmen are all unified. They all love each other. They all hang out together. You know, do you know what I mean? Or all, yeah. You know, or, all the mechanics, you know. Oh, yeah, there's such unity in the mechanics scene, you know, where they all hang out. You know, exactly. It's like, well, bollocks, you believe it? all this <laughs> bullshit because it gets fed to you in your, well, first in the scene, I'm 15, 16, I'm, I'm an ideologist. And you believe all this shit until at some point when you go, well, wait a minute, I've got nothing in my bank account. I, I've got a shopping bill to pay. 
I've got to get a full time job, and that's the end. Of, the end of story. Like there is no such thing as you know carrying this on in perpetuity without having something to fall back on. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, and I think that fall was, back that on was why I you... ended up getting an education. You know, right. I hadn't got one. So what's your PhD like... in? Oh, it's in sociology. Um, so though I'm a doctor, I mean, if you're ever on a plane with me and you have a heart attack or something, you know, don't yeah. go, oh, he's a doctor. It's only no fucking use to you, you know. Oh, um, if I have a heart attack, I want to go straight out like that. Bang. Don't, don't, do not fucking resuscitate. I'm done. Don't hang about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just get it done. So does, does your PhD apply to your daily job more than it applies to what you yeah I'd, well sort of mm. uh, in the sense that i work for a data archive um at a university right but in fairness the skills that i developed doing that phd i don't really use in the job it probably helped me get the job and obviously the the actual the place that i'm working is is you know is infused with academia but it's the skills that i developed during the phd i've probably forgotten most of it to be honest but it was like 10 years ago or something now. <laughs> so, yes, so. But the thing is you're part of that rarefied breed it's greg graffin there's milo Ackerman, and there's dexter holland from offspring oh and vic bondy you're all phds yeah no that's true yeah i knew about milo and uh and uh dexter holland i think yeah. there's another one there's another quite famous one i can't think who it is this now. is Vic, Vic from yeah, Vic Bondi and Greg Graffin's a PhD as well. So oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think they're all actually like doing stuff with their PhDs. Um, oh, they're, they're, they're like academics who play a punk rock. They just happen to have like you know their bands have to be massive. So we go tour once a year, and you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think for them it's like they have their they have their academic career and they play in a band on the side. Yeah. Whereas I play in lots of bands and try and, you know, <laughs> go and work just to, just to live, really, you know. So. <laughs> but, like, you know, yeah. I, got, I got sick of working in a chemical. But basically, I spent most of my 20s um, working in a chemical factory or between that and on the dole. I'd like lay me off when the work got scarce and I'd be on the dole for six months. And then they'd go, oh, James, we've got some more work. Do you want to come back? And I'd be, yeah, all right. But it paid nothing, you know. It was yeah. rubbish. But it, it just got me off the dole for spells, you know, in the 90s. And so I did that. And I just thought, I got to about 27. And I thought, I can't keep doing this for the rest of my days. What am I going to do? You know, so I thought, I'll go I'll go, and I'll, I'll do a degree. But of course, by the time I'd done the degree, because of the time that it was, I mean, it takes, I was working full time and doing a degree part time. Right. Um, by the time I'd got the degree, Every fucker had a degree. It was it didn't really set you apart anymore, you know. So I was like, oh fuck it, I'll do a master's, you know. And then I went back to work, like I was working somewhere else in a housing association by then. And uh, you know, I was working there and I, I did that for a year and I thought, I'm fucking bored with this. And now I'm now I'm overqualified for what I'm doing, but I'm underqualified for a lot of other things. And I just I didn't know what to do really. I mean, you know, so my supervisor that got me through my master's basically said, well, why don't you apply for some funding to do a PhD? And I thought, I didn't think I'd get it, to be honest. I didn't think I'd get the funding. But I, miraculously, I did. And I thought, well, you know, that's all right. I've got a stipend for three years. I'll do that until the money runs out. That's <laughs> you know, effectively how it works. <laughs> well, that's education, man. You know, we've all done the higher education thing. and Because um, like, I'm a copywriter to pay the bills, copywriter and a ghostwriter. And I keep telling myself, yeah, I'll get writing, writing the last, the next novel. But by the time you finish writing stuff for other people, by the end of the day, you think, 
I'm, I'm stuffed with a computer, you know, and I, I will do it. I will do it eventually, but it's like, you know, what you do to pay the bills becomes more important than what you do in your creative life. And that's trying to find that balance is always difficult. That's why I, I like talking to people like you, because you just go, fuck it. I've got a million things to do and I'm going to do them. Yeah. And I, that's I, I, invigorating I, I, and, it, you know, it, it's inspiring. And in fairness, I, I would, <laughs> this sounds probably quite mad, I would do more, you know, if I could. But there are some days when you just get home and you just go, you know, I, I just haven't got anything. There's nothing left in the tank today. It's been a really hard day. And you, you start doing something and you're like, there's no point because I've got nothing left. There's nothing there, you know. Most days that isn't the case. But some days, you know, you just can't get anything done. Well, there's there's a limit to human endurance. There's there's only so much the body can do. You know, there's only so yeah. much we can do before we just like drop dead of a stroke or some shit like that. Well, which yeah, I'm playing for now, <laughs> being you know being a bit older, like the glorious stroke, take you out, bang, job done, because you know <laughs> you outlive your usefulness. So the book's out. People can get it from jamesdomestic.com. What's mm-hmm. next, band wise, music wise, record wise? <laughs> Right, band-wise. So we're in the middle of recording uh, the next Domestics album. It's weird. We did the last album, Cherry Blossom Life, I think, came out in something like 2017. Um, We've done like loads of splits. We've done three or four splits since then, and I think another seven-inch. But we haven't done a full album for like about five years. Um, So uh, we thought it was about time we did. Uh, And we're recording it ourselves, actually. And it's coming out so far, it's sounding really good. I think it would be the best. I mean, obviously, I'm going to say this because I'm not going to say, I'm not, I'm not going to say, I don't think it'll be as good as the last one. Am I? Because that'd be mad. <laughs> you know, but, but I genuinely think it's going to be the best Domestics album. It's the, it's, it's the fastest, you know, most full on, I mean, Domestics album that, that we've, we've done, I think. Right. And you know, they've always been pretty fast and full on, but this one in particular, I think. Uh, we've really gelled as a unit over the last sort of five or six years. Um, and yeah, it's meant we can get the tempos up even higher, and just everything's just really tight sounding, you know. So the songs are good. So, so there's that happening. Um, I just put out one of my other bands, Tokyo Lungs, just put out a split seven inch with a band from Leicester uh, called Feral State. So that just came out a few weeks ago. Actually, came the Crash Band. The sort of like DBE thrashy crossover. Uh, Feral Feral State are like a DBE band. Yeah. Tokyo Lungs is pretty much like. Yeah, that's what I'm making. It's basically like US hardcore yeah, style. To, see, but, you need to send us this. Vocals. You need to send us these records. Oh, did I? Yeah, I think I yeah. might have done. Yeah. So yeah, that's a nice, nice mix. We um, the domestics actually did some dates with Feral State uh, the other month, and yeah, a good bunch of lads in great life. So yeah, so that's that's come out. Pisser record we're booking the studio in April next year to go and do that. Um, oh, there's another record actually. <laughs> Right, here's another project which I'd completely forgotten about. There's one called Domestic Curse. Um, there's a 12 inch coming out. Well, I've only just had the test pressing, so I don't quite know when it's coming out, but sometime probably early next year. Um, which is essentially again, this is sort of bridging that divide because it's it's a guy called John Hewson, aka Curse, that does some music as Curse. It's like all the electronic stuff. And I've known John for years because he used to play in a really great band um, around these parts called the Five String Dropout Band, um, who basically nobody outside of like a 25 mile radius has even heard of. But they were 
fucking great, but they were too lazy to get out of town, you know. It was such a great band. Um, but there were like acrimonious splits with them and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, I still see John Lyon again. And he had all these uh, instrumental tracks he was doing. I said to him, I'd really like to sort of, you know, write some lyrics for some of these. Oh, God, yeah, we bang up for that. So we did a few and uh, I made a few suggestions for changing sort of arrangements and things. And it ended up being called kind, of, kind of like like poetry almost um, over electronic music. So there's the tracks are quite long form, like five or six minutes. Something right. Like but yeah, we've, so we've got this 12 inch EP coming out called uh, The Five Curses um early next year so yeah that'll be interesting to see what people make of that pretty freak them out a bit <laughs> <laughs> the digital age girls got heron yeah it, it, it kind of is a little bit actually it's funny you should say that actually yeah, yeah and i do love Gil Scott heron as well yeah so yeah uh, other things musically um oh well i'm djing on saturday me and my other half she's actually sorting out her records for it now i think um we're djing uh like soul and funk and um northern soul and motown all that sort of stuff on saturday i do that sometimes um sometimes i do reggae and dub and that sort of stuff as well dj sets it's weird you make more more money playing a few records for a few hours than you ever do playing in a bloody band it's ridiculous <laughs> Paul from sheer terror does the same thing doesn't he when he's when he's got downtime he 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 does the DJ thing, but he's, he's a Northern Soul. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, on your last show. Yeah, I was listening yeah. to, the, I think, the last show you were saying about that. Because doesn't he do Northern Soul stuff? Yeah, yeah, he does. Not, he's a Northern Soul DJ in his, in his downtime from sheer terror. So, wow. It, yeah. yeah, what a contrast. But then I suppose, trust me, really, I suppose. But yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, nice to notice someone else with, with a, a, such weird sort of extremes of the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're all no, weird. I like, we're all weird. I like, I like too long, we're too old. I love records. <laughs> do I, sorry? We were, we're all we're all too old and too weird to you know do anything else. We don't know how to do anything else. We're just too stubborn to quit like so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, although although like the DJing stuff, I mean I don't I don't try to fortune for it, but I you know a pub will give you a couple of hundred quid or so, you know, to go and do, do, do some uh, do some stuff as long as it's popular. And um you know, it basically what he does is it, it keeps me in record money. <laughs> I just, I, I always just end up buying more records with it. You know, well, so. it's, it's just ridiculous. Like, I, I got rid of like 150 books the other day, and they're still like piled up in piles all around the house. I've got more books than I'm ever going to read in ten lifetimes. But you know, it's an addiction. I have a problem. You know, I will freely admit it. Uh, between that and music, there is no there is no room to move in the house like so. You know? No, that sounds very very much like our house. Um, yeah. Between mine and Lou's records, basically we've got a, a, a lounge downstairs or dining room downstairs, and a whole wall is just covered from from floor to ceiling in those IKEA Cadillac shelves. It's yeah. all full of albums and twelve inches. There's um, a great big cupboard full of seven inches. There are also boxes all around the room that I'm in, in the room at the back where we keep the DJing decks full of boxes. Of seven I mean, it's bloody ridiculous. More records, <laughs> more records you ever listen to, but it's not going to stop you buying more because no, it isn't. Yeah. Got to hear. <laughs> it's it's a band you have to hear, and it's on this label and that label. It's this color print. It's this color press, and it has that cover. So you're just going to scour them. We have a problem. Yeah, I mean, for it's, me, it's for me, it's always uh, there's always something yeah I haven't heard, and it, I mean, it's yeah. got worse for me because you know, although I've been into different kinds of music other than other than punk for forever, really. I mean, it, it's really been probably the last five or ten years that I've sort of done bits of DJing with reggae and, and the soul stuff and funk and what have you. 
So, but the soul stuff, I mean, part of the fun of that is discovering something old from like 30, 40, 50 years ago that no one knows. And you pick it up really cheap, you know, generally, sometimes not. Um, and, and, and making all these discoveries is, you know, there's so much music out there. Well, you know this, that, yeah. that most people have never heard. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I said, there's well, records galore that no one's hardly heard or a select few people who really know their stuff have heard, but no one else has, you know. Yeah. And I love discovering stuff like it's, that. It's just stumbling across that makes it all worthwhile. It's like if somebody says to me, New York hardcore or Boston hardcore, that's it, I'm done. You know, just take my wallet. Just just get out the money and that's an end of it. You know, because I, 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 I used to hear it. I used to be like that with uh, with Japanese stuff. Um, right. You know, I love all the, all the Japanese hardcore and stuff. But then, you know, I think there were a few labels um, that ended up doing a bit of barrel scraping and re-releasing some of this stuff. And you think, well, there was a reason why they only did a demo and a flake seat. And this wasn't this, well, this wasn't worth pressing <laughs> on album, no. you know. Right, so... I've either eased off of going, oh, a Japanese band I've never heard of. You know, because, you know whilst there are some absolute... Belters, you know, I mean, there's some absolute classic Japanese hardcore, but SOB. some of it, some of it really isn't that great. <laughs> no, <laughs> right. I think we'll have to call it a night, but James, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And I want yeah, like people, people, people need to buy that book. So again, remind people where you get, get your book. Okay. You can get the book crew by me and Dave uh, Cullen from jamesdomestic.com um, and also from Dave's site, which I can't remember the name of. <laughs> jamesdomestic.com, you'll find it there. Jamesdomestic.com. James, it was an absolute pleasure, brother. We'll do this again sometime soon. That would be great, Tim. Nice one. Nice one, Thanks mate. very much. Cheers, Cheers. buddy. Ta-da. That's it for this episode, folks. Uh, don't forget to check out James Domestic at jamesdomestic.com and Andrew Thorpe King at andrewthorpeking.com. Buy their books, enjoy their records, enjoy their music, and I'm sure you'll agree they're both incredibly interesting people. So uh, that's about it for now. Uh, Ta-ta, we'll see you next time.